Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Thanks to you at home for joining us tonight. Do you remember this photo? The iconic image of classified documents splayed out on the floor of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home after the FBI searched it last August. The reason we have all seen this photo is because Donald Trump essentially forced the Justice Department to reveal it in a court filing after Trump went to court to try and slow down the investigation. That is how we all got access to this photo last summer, a filing in open court. There is literally no question as to its origin, who made the photo public and why it was being made public, which is what made this exchange today between Senator Ted Cruz and Attorney General Merrick Garland, which is why it made it a little awkward. As you know, the FBI raided Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. And subsequent to that raid, there have been multiple leaks about what was discovered there, including a photograph of documents that were discovered there. Did, did you know about the leaks the from photo, that raid? The photograph was a filing in court in response to a motion filed by Mr. Trump. It was not a leak. It was not a leak. Full stop. That was one of many exchanges from Merrick Garland's testimony today on Capitol Hill. And we'll have more on what happened in that strange and contentious hearing later on in this hour. But one of the consistent themes we've been hearing from Republicans, including Ted Cruz, is this idea that the FBI is now hell-bent on taking down Donald Trump, that the FBI has somehow caved to Democratic political pressure and is part of a partisan scheme to destroy Trump's political prospects. So it was notable that on the very same day as this hearing was happening on Capitol Hill, that we got this brand new piece of reporting from The Washington Post detailing exactly what was happening inside the FBI and the Justice Department ahead of last summer's search of Mar-a-Lago. And that reporting makes it clear that the FBI had, in fact, succumbed to some political pressure. But it wasn't pressure to investigate or damage Donald Trump. It was the opposite. FBI agents investigating the former president's retention of classified documents had been intimidated by Trump's relentless attacks over the years and basically cowed into operating with extreme caution. This is a quote from the piece. Justice Department prosecutors learned FBI agents were loath to conduct a surprise search. They heard from top FBI officials that some agents were simply afraid. They worried taking aggressive steps investigating Trump could blemish or even end their careers, according to some people with knowledge of the discussions. One official dubbed it the hangover of Crossfire Hurricane, a reference to the FBI investigation of Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election. The FBI, the same FBI that certain Republicans have been attacking, was not chomping at the bit to raid Donald Trump's beach house mansion. Instead, the agency was proceeding exceedingly carefully, and they were worried about the political implications of provoking the former president. And all this resulted in very heated battles between the FBI and the Justice Department prosecutors who were advocating a more aggressive strategy to try and ret retrieve those documents down at Mar-a-Lago. According to the Washington Post, 
It was only after a series of intense negotiations with Justice Department prosecutors that the FBI eventually moved forward with its search. And all along the way, in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary, the FBI continued to give Trump and his legal team the benefit of the doubt. The Washington Post reports that some FBI field agents wanted to shutter the criminal investigation altogether in early June after Trump's legal team asserted a diligent search had been conducted. But according to The Washington Post, the Justice Department prosecutors continued to push for a search of Mar-a-Lago. Those prosecutors were ultimately vindicated when the eventual search in August recovered more than 100 classified documents, 18 of them top secret and some so secret that FBI and DOJ investigators didn't even have clearance to review them. So how does this new behind-the-scenes reporting change what we know about this investigation and where it might be headed next? Joining us now is Devlin Barrett, national security and law enforcement reporter for The Washington Post. One of the bylines on this piece, Devlin, thanks for making the time. It is a bit of exhaustive reporting. And I kind of came away with it confused and enlightened. What is your takeaway from having investigated all of this in terms of the relationship with the DOJ and the FBI on the topic of the Trump Mar-a-Lago search? So I think there's a couple ways to think about it. One is that it is it is very common for prosecutors and agents to argue during the course of an investigation about what exactly to do, how aggressive to go after witnesses, how aggressive to go after evidence. That happens in a lot of cases. There's there's tension points, there's flare-ups, they get resolved and they move forward. Um, I think what's so different about the Trump investigation is really two things. Obviously, this is a very high-profile case you know there's going to be a lot of attention paid to this. You know there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, second guessing, uh, both inside the government and outside the government. And two, I think, as you see in the discussions as we report them, there's a lot of tension and worry about making the wrong move. And for the FBI agents, that often meant worrying about what if we go too fast, too quickly, and, and make a mistake. And for the Justice Department prosecutors, the worry was often we can't sit on this. We can't just wait and hope that uh, the former president will do the right thing. And those two worries and those two types of concerns uh, really were at odds sometimes. Devlin, I guess one of the things I, I wonder how you what your like final opinion on, on this is. On one hand, it seems like the FBI agents are reluctant to investigate for the, to, to raid or search the Mar-a-Lago property because they're concerned about the optics. They're concerned about what's going to happen to their careers. They don't want to go in and raid a former president's home in jackets that say FBI. And then on the other hand, it seems like there's some legitimate belief that maybe Trump and his legal team are cooperating and that they have gotten everything they need. I mean, how much of this reluctance to search Mar-a-Lago was due to political pressure and how much of it was legitimate belief that actually we have everything we need? So I think one thing to remember is the the hangover across by a hurricane and really the hangover of the FBI investigations of 2016 into Donald Trump and into Hillary Clinton just permeate this whole discussion. And I think it's important to remember that as much as there were political debates and political retribution, there were also genuine mistakes made in the course of those investigations that the FBI paid dearly for after the fact. And so I, I, I certainly don't discount the, the Justice Department concerns that too much of the FBI's caution 
was based on the idea of political blowback. But I also think you have to you have to keep in mind that there were inspector general reports that were sharply, sharply critical of how the FBI did pass investigations of this type of profile. And so what you see in these back and forth and what our, what our reporting shows is that <clears throat> there's a degree of uh, really different approach. And, and so much so that back in May, uh, even before the subpoena is sent for these documents, you know, the F, the, some of the Justice Department officials want to do a search then. And the FBI thinks that's a bad idea. And then they get a little cooperation from the Trump side. Right. And the, de- and the debate between the FBI and the Justice Department is how much is this full cooperation or is this only partial cooperation? And there again, you see a difference of opinion. And then eventually they get the uh, security camera footage that shows people moving boxes in and around Mar-a-Lago and think, oh, wait, maybe we don't have everything. But I mean, I, I, and that's I, a huge piece of evidence. Yeah. There, there's some reporting that you did at the end of last year, and I'll pull up the, the headline. Investigators see ego, not money, as Trump's motive on classified papers. Is it still your understanding that prosecutors believe Trump's motivating the reason he took these documents down to Mar-a-Lago was ego? And if so, how do you think that informs the way they feel about the search slash raid at this point? Right. So first of all, I think we need to be clear. When you say it was ego as, as, a, as the most likely motive here, that doesn't get Trump off the hook. Obviously, if you were doing something for purely financial purposes, that's, I think most people would agree that's worse. But the, the bottom line as to how these documents are supposed to be handled is they are not to leave, you know, secure facilities uh, and, and the government safeguards around them. So our understanding is that reporting is still right where it is, which is that these documents, these classified documents seem to be jammed in with a bunch of stuff. And people don't seem to have been careful or thoughtful at all as to taking this volume of classified material out of government security, out of government custody. But a big part of this case is about what happens in the summer after the government formally demands this stuff back with a subpoena. And and as you pointed out, there are security camera footage we have reported that shows people moving boxes after, boxes of documents, after the subpoena has been received. And that's a big red warning sign to prosecutors and and agents and both sides for all the disagreements about this that may have existed at different times both sides agree that that security camera footage really changed their understanding of this case right it's just too bad that the timeline uh because of all the internal arguments and of course a special master pushed back the charging decisions on the parts of the prosecutors and now we have a special counsel that is going to make that call for them devlin barrett from the washington post thank you for joining us tonight great reporting a riveting account of what's been happening in a very important investigation thanks for your time thanks Joining us now is Brandon Van Grack. He's a former national security official at DOJ and a former prosecutor on special counsel Robert Mueller's team. Brandon, thank you for being here. What a, what a time to talk to you about what is going on, specifically this reporting. I wonder, after you read it, what stuck out to you? Did the relationship between the prosecutors and the FBI agents sound like the experience you have had, or was it different? Well, What stuck out the most is that there were individuals, senior officials who were part of this deliberation that chose to leak this information right at the time that the Department of Justice and FBI 
are likely making a charging decision, you know, a debate, deliberation, disagreement, as, 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 uh, as Devlin was talking, uh, mentioned is common, does occur. But when you have a leak like this, it, it undermines the integrity of the investigation. And, and most importantly, how do those individuals, those same individuals go into a room and have an honest and candid discussion about charges, knowing that there are people who, if they don't, uh, if the decision goes against them, if there's a disagreement, that they may air their grievances publicly. And 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 I think it, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's sort of a troubling uh, thing to learn. And I think it, it does have an impact on the investigation. Do you? I mean. But how do you read the, I mean, when I finished the story, I thought, oh, the FBI or the DOJ, everybody's operating out of an abundance of caution here, right? The concerns were raised by FBI agents. They were listened to. There was a whole series of negotiations. They waited until they had effectively a, an airtight case to pursue this search of Mar-a-Lago. I mean, if anything, it refutes the idea that the FBI, that the DOJ is somehow weaponized against Trump. So wouldn't that lay the foundation for a, a charging decision that could potentially criminally indict the president? Or do you think it's something else? Well, you know, this isn't, uh, I, I, there's the reporting shows a, the thoughtful deliberation that you just went through. I don't think this is about whether sort of the facts are ultimately leading to a particular conclusion. It's the fact that like deliberative discussions like this, they're protected, they're privileged, they're, they're not disclosed. And it's for a reason because you want someone to be honest and say, look, my agents are, are concerned about conducting this raid because of retribution. You want people to be comfortable saying that. It's true. Like, let's be honest about the fact that there are or may be negative consequences. Like, it, it has happened in prior investigations. You want people to feel comfortable at least expressing those fears and concerns. And when people are feel comfortable in those environments, disclosing that outside of that that protective space, then it impairs the ability of people to be honest, to throw those considerations in. And it's the reason why I think not that ultimately everything we've seen from the department is that ultimately I do think they'll reach the right conclusion and, and with, with, with the, uh, the right considerations, but it does affect the process. And, and it's the process that I'm concerned about. How do you, I mean, there is an ongoing DOJ investigation courtesy of special counsel Jack Smith. How do you think uh, the story like this about these deliberations affects what's happening behind closed doors at the DOJ right now? I think there has to be frustration. I think there has to be um, folks that are wondering who who would you know, frustration that th this is coming out. And again, l let's let's think of the timing. There will be a charging decision in the next couple months. We know that just based on the timeline and, and with respect to the election. So this is all happening at a very sensitive ju juncture. It's also happening the morning before Attorney General Garland testified in front of Congress where, you know, these very concerns, this very debate, you know, was brought out. And so it, it seems very intentional that now is the time that someone is trying trying to air this information. Yeah. And we know that Senator, I believe Josh Hawley, was questioning the attorney general on the Hill about this story, saying you signed off on this raid. You overrode the desire of FBI agents. It's already being weaponized uh, by the right to some degree. 
uh, no matter what anybody's takeaway from the story may be. But to put the meta-narrative aside right now of like the implications of this story on present investigations, I, I wonder if you could break down a little of the dynamic that we see playing out in this piece, which is, you know, the DOJ works so intently to to propose that it is an apolitical organization and that the FBI works without politics, you know, on the landscape. But what becomes abundantly clear in this account, and to be honest, other ones, is in trying to be apolitical, the Justice Department ultimately sometimes makes very political decisions. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, you know, I, I will I'll give you a defensive response, which I, I don't think that's a fair assessment. Uh, and I certainly that's not the takeaway I have with with this story. I think the story is that you have both the Department of Justice and the FBI proceeding carefully and cautiously as they should in conducting a search, not a raid, a search of a former president's residence. It should be careful and cautious. And and, and to that end, it's important to note that the right decision was reached here. Like this search happened. Um, and, you know, we talk about sort of you know, politics injecting this. All of the reporting from special counsel Jack Smith is an investigation that is proceeding full speed ahead, aggressively bringing people in front of the grand jury, bringing attorneys of the former president in front of the grand jury. And so it, it, it strikes me that, uh, Ultimately, this is an investigation that should proceed carefully and cautiously. And, and I don't think we've seen anything, at least in this investigation, that screams politics or politics sort of inappropriately or unfairly um, affecting the investigation, uh, yeah. including and I guess, this reporting. And I, what I meant by that is the degree to which they had to entertain the reservations of field agents who were scared of Trump, even though they had the evidence that, you know, a raid of search really very much made sense. That, that, that's a great point. And, and I think actually it's great going through the timeline, at least according to the reporting, which is there's an indication that the Department of Justice in May wanting to proceed with a search warrant. And instead, the decision was made, according to this reporting, that let's let's do a subpoena instead. And it turns out that that that, that going forward with the subpoena was the right decision. Not, not only did they obtain evidence, but it turns out that, they, that this is where sort of the evidence of obstruction c comes to light. Yes. And in fact, it justifies, further justifies this decision to conduct the search. And so, yeah. in, in, in fact, just, just one other piece, which is one of the debates I find interesting uh, that in the reporting was that the FBI, even at that late stage in July, said that there should be a consensual search. And I, I want to highlight from some of the filings that occurred last summer and fall that there was an opportunity for a consensual search. On June 3rd, the Department of Justice was at Mar-a-Lago with three FBI agents, and they were ex explicitly prohibited, explicitly prohibited from searching the storage room where the documents were. So there had been an opportunity for consensual search, and, and that, that time had passed. Yeah, they, they were given many bites at the apple, as it were, and basically made the case for their own obstruction over at Team Trump. Ben, Brandon Van Grack, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for making the time. Really appreciate the perspective. Thank you. We have a lot more to get to this evening, including a major win for people who need life-saving medication at a price they can actually afford. Plus, Senate Republicans tried to tussle with Attorney General Merrick Garland today and Boy, oh boy, we will have more on that just ahead.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. When you were sworn into office two years ago, the department was embroiled in scandal. You committed to restoring its independence, and I believe you've kept your word. I expect that we'll hear accusations today from some of my Republican colleagues to the contrary, such as weaponization of the Justice Department. Your department is not trusted because it has been politicized. The Department of Justice has been politicized to the greatest extent I've ever seen in this country. And it has done a discredit to the Department of Justice, to the FBI, and to the administration of law in this country. That is what Attorney General Merrick Garland faced today when he appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee for an oversight hearing. Now, Garland's repeat appearance at this kind of hearing is a real return to how things used to work. By way of an example, the last attorney general who appeared at one of these hearings was Jeff Sessions. Remember Jeff Sessions? Back in the year 2017, when Republicans controlled the Senate. Today, Republicans took the opportunity to grill Garland on the issues they deemed most important to the country. Senator Chuck Grassley focused on the investigation into Hunter Biden. Senator Marsha Blackburn went after Garland on what she called the two tiers of justice at the DOJ and questioned why the department had not prosecuted a group accused of trying to firebomb a crisis pregnancy center in her state. Crisis pregnancy centers, if you recall, are known for discouraging patients from having abortions by advertising themselves as clinics and then sharing misinformation about abortions. This was this exchange between Senator Blackburn and the attorney general. Let's talk about the far left group, Jane's Revenge, because they claimed responsibility for that. They went so far as to spray paint their name on the wall. So do you intend to prosecute them? We intend, if we find them, to do that. There is a oh, sim- so you can't find them. If you have information about those groups, we, we well, would be is, happy to— Well, that is your job. That's right, and we are putting it. heavy resources into this. Meanwhile, several, senator, several other senators were concerned that no charges had been filed after protests outside the residences of Supreme Court justices in the wake of the leaked Dobbs opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade. Senator Tom Cotton appeared to question whether the DOJ was too preoccupied to take any meaningful action. Consider the efforts your department has put into tracking down everyone who is even on the Capitol grounds on January 6, 2021. You've dedicated millions of man hours to study videotape, to do forensic analysis of computers and devices, to go knock and conduct interviews. You can't allocate just a few agents to look at people's social media accounts and say they were president outside of a justice home, we're going to go arrest them and charge them? Our, it's a black-letter violation of the law. Our priority is violence and threats of violence and protection of the lives of the justices, and that is what we're doing. Joining us now is Matt Miller, former chief spokesman for the Obama Justice Department. Matt, thank you for being here. Um, 
just wow in terms of everything Merrick Garland has to deal with. In addition to grillings like that on the Hill, let's just refresh everybody's memory about what this man is dealing with. The special counsel investigation into Trump's handling of documents, the special counsel investigation into Biden's handling of documents, the ongoing Hunter Biden investigation, the ongoing Durham probe into the origins of the Russia investigation, and of course, the special counsel investigation into January 6th, which I don't think made it onto that that list, but it's nonetheless a major investigation. Is it is it in this climate possible for Merrick Garland to wear all these hats, to manage all of this in a way that is going to convince anyone that the Department of Justice is not being politicized? Uh, I think you can you can do all this and convince some people that the department is is not being politicized, but you're never going to convince everyone that DOJ has not been politicized, especially because there are always people who want to believe that no matter the facts and refuse to accept evidence even when it's put in front of their face. You saw that today where uh, a lot of the questions the attorney general supplied answers to and the, the senators who asked the questions didn't want to hear those an- answers and continue to ask the same questions over and over. So I think when you have this job, look, it, this isn't just a Merrick Garland problem. This has been true for attorneys general going back for years and years. It was very much true for Eric Holder when I worked for him. It was true for Janet Reno. It's been the case for attorneys general of both parties because the issues that the department handles are so sensitive and often so political and so important that they they raise tempers on both sides of the aisle. With all due respect to those years and your service, and thank you for that service, it feels like the investigations that Garland has to pay particular attention to, things like the Durham probe, right, which from all outside accounts didn't find anything, an investigation into the investigators who looked into the Trump-Russia investigation, the Hunter Biden laptop story, which, you know, remains an investigation at the Department of Justice, even the the, uh, resources that the department is allocating to crisis pregnancy centers, at the precise moment that women's reproductive freedoms are under assault in this country, it feels like he has to politically um, dedicate resources to these investigations, to these conflicts, if you will, in a way that other attorney generals might not have had to. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Uh, I certainly think he has to spend his time thinking about them and thinking how he's going to respond to them when he's on the Hill and when he's uh, getting questions from reporters. But one of the things that's really important in this job is that you not let political pressure bludgeon you into doing things that you wouldn't otherwise do. You really have to remember when you go up and and take these attacks from the Hill to focus on the things you can control in your job and the things you can't. You can control how you perform your job. You can't control what people say about you and what attacks they, they launch at you. And I think some of the worst moments in the department its recent history has been when it has let political pressure push it into doing things and handling investigations that it wouldn't other uh, in ways that it wouldn't otherwise conduct them. The Hillary Clinton investigation is probably the most uh, prominent example, where Jim Comey, uh, you know, most prominently, but certainly was not the only person in the department who made decisions about that case because of the pressure they were getting from Republicans on Capitol Hill. And once you start departing from the way you would normally conduct investigations, and start doing things because people on the Hill are saying, "Put resources here." not where the facts or the law uh, uh, justify resources being spent, you really start to make mistakes that can come to mark your, mark your tenure and are very, very difficult to undo. Yeah, I wonder what you made of Tom Cotton's suggestion that the <clears throat> DOJ is too busy investigating the insurrectionists <clears throat> and has allocated too many resources to January 6th, and they should maybe um, spend some of that time and human capital investigating people who were protesting outside of Supreme Court justices' homes after the Dobbs decision. 
Yeah, well, there's a very easy answer to that, which is no matter what you think about the appropriateness of, of protesting outside a Supreme Court justice's house, it is not illegal to do so. It's, of course, illegal to threaten a Supreme Court justice, and the department arrested and is prosecuting someone who, who uh, threatened Justice Kavanaugh out, outside his home, but it is not illegal to protest there. It is very much illegal to enter the Capitol in the middle of an insurrection. So there are a lot of kind of apples and oranges comparisons that get made up on the Hill. You saw this in the case with Senator Blackburn's questions about uh, investigations in a crisis pregnancy centers, as the attorney general made very clear, if we can find evidence of someone who firebombed a, a crisis pregnancy center, we will very much prosecute them. The difference between those, those cases and the prosecutions that they have brought of people who have blocked access to abortion clinics is evidence. They have evidence. They can see the people who have blocked access to abortion clinics. The firebombing of the, uh, this crisis pregnancy center happened in the middle of the night, and they don't yet have suspects, but they are very much investigating it. So it goes to that point I said at the outset, which is oftentimes in these hearings, you get questions from people who don't want answers and uh, uh, you know, attacks made by people who are not interested in the actual truth. Yes, comparisons. You you generously say apples to oranges. I would say it's more along the lines of like apples to chicken nuggets or wooden blocks to bananas. But that's just my interpretation of all of this. Matt Miller, thank you, my friend, for joining us tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you. We have a lot more to get to tonight, including new revelations about the judicial activist who is arguably responsible for the conservative majority on the Supreme Court and who suddenly got very, very rich during the Trump years. Plus, the pressure on one drug manufacturer to lower the price of insulin appears to have worked. We'll tell you all about it. That's next. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Last November, the new CEO of Twitter, Elon Musk, rolled out a major change in the platform. For the low price of $8 a month, any user could skip the typical due diligence that Twitter had done in the past to verify user identities and just pay to be verified on the site. It led to chaos. You might remember spoof accounts like this one, pretending to be Pepsi, tweeting that Coke was better. Or this spoof account of Nintendo that tweeted a photo of the character Mario with his middle finger up. But the trolling tweet that caused the most real-life drama that day was this one. An account pretending to be one of the largest insulin manufacturers in the country, Eli Lilly, saying, quote, we are excited to announce insulin is free now. Within a day, Eli Lilly's stock had fallen nearly 
The Washington Post reported that inside Eli Lilly itself, the fake tweet sparked a panic. Company officials scrambled to contact Twitter representatives and demanded they kill the viral spoof, worried it could undermine their brand's reputation. And there is good reason Eli Lilly was worried the idea of free insulin would undermine its reputation. Insulin has been around for more than 100 years now. It costs drug companies roughly $10 a vial to make. But for decades, Eli Lilly has been raising the price of insulin, charging hundreds of dollars for a product it takes only 10 to make. And Eli Lilly isn't alone. American insulin manufacturers charge exponentially more vial, more per vial than manufacturers in other countries do. And because so many diabetics need insulin to live, paying these prices isn't really a choice. Last year, more than a million Americans were forced to ration their insulin rather than take the prescribed amount, a cost-saving measure that can literally be deadly. And if you're wondering why this hasn't been fixed with legislation, the truth is that activists and Democrats have been trying for years. Last year, President Biden managed to cap insulin prices for seniors who use Medicare at $35 a month. But Republicans voted against allowing that discount to apply to the millions of Americans under 65 who need the drug to live. With Republicans in control of the House this year, there wasn't a ton of hope that new legislation would get passed anytime soon. But now it looks like it might not have to. Today, Eli Lilly announced that they are voluntarily capping the price of their insulin at $35 a month, whether or not you have insurance effective immediately. The company's CEO said the decision came as a result of conversations between the company and members of Congress. The company may also have been spurred to act because now nonprofits and startups and even the California state government are all set to start making their own cheaper insulin imminently. Now, all of that would probably not be happening if it weren't for everyone from activists to Internet trolls being incredibly loud on this issue for years now. We shouldn't lose sight of that. Public pressure works. Still to come tonight, explosive new reporting and investigation into the man nicknamed Donald Trump's Judge Whisperer. That is coming up next. Leonard Leo has single-handedly changed the face of the judiciary under the auspices of Ed Meese and many of the people who started the Federalist Society. He has many hats. He, that isn't even all he does. He doesn't really tell all that he does, but I know enough to know the man is a force of nature. That was the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And the man she was talking about is a major conservative fundraiser and judicial activist and a friend of the Thomases, a man known as Donald Trump's judge whisperer, Leonard Leo. As the executive director of the Federalist Society until 2020 and Trump's unpaid judicial advisor, Leo was the source for President Trump's list of approved conservative nominees for the Supreme Court. That is how we got Justices Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett through Trump's judge whisperer, through Leonard Leo. And in an epic new report today, Politico gave new meaning to Ginny Thomas' statement about Leo. He doesn't really tell all that he does, but I know enough to know the man is a force of nature. Soon after Leo became Trump's advisor in 2016, he amassed a sort of unnatural amount of wealth. He bought two multi-million dollar mansions in Maine, along with four new cars, spots in private schools for his children, 
and a wine locker at Morton Steakhouse, which is, I don't actually know what a wine locker is, but it sounds fancy and also maybe unnecessary. Mr. Leo certainly didn't really tell the public how he bought all of that, but thanks to Politico, we now have a pretty good idea. Leo's personal wealth appears to have skyrocketed in tandem with major victories on the road to an ultra-conservative court. One day before the Senate took a controversial procedural vote, clearing the way for Kavanaugh's appointment to replace Kennedy, that was the day Leonard Leo bought his first mansion up in the state of Maine. That lifestyle upgrade was reportedly funded by Leo's network of nonprofit organizations. Based on dozens of records from 2000 to 2021, Politico found that after he became a Trump advisor in 2016, Leo erected a for-profit ecosystem around his longtime nonprofit empire that is shielded from taxes. A network of political nonprofits formed by Leo moved at least $43 million to a new firm he is leading, raising serious questions about his conservative legal movement is funded. And that new firm declined to say what services it provided for the $43 million payments. A tax law expert told Politico that's a classic type of situation the IRS looks into if it appears you, via a nonprofit, are shoveling money to yourself in a for-profit context. Politico reporters say they sent Leo multiple requests for comment. He did not respond. We also reached out to Leo tonight about Politico's reporting. We have not yet heard back. But all of this together looks kind of bad. And it certainly raises questions about the influence of dark money on the nation's highest court. Joining us now is Melissa Murray, law professor at New York University and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Melissa, thank you for being here tonight. Every time I was saying to you before this started, every time you're here, there's something explosive and terrible happening at the Supreme Court. Um, Can you tell me how you read this? Because as I see it, what I sort of gleaned from this piece It sounds like Leonard Leo, who is the architect of a conservative takeover of the judiciary, not just at the Supreme Court, but at federal courts across the country, is getting money from donors to maybe pick judges that have conservative donors' interests in mind and then paying himself out to the tune of millions of dollars. So I don't know that I was necessarily surprised to read this blockbuster reporting from Heidi Presbola. I will say it has been a lo- there's been a lot of discussion over the years about this empire that Leonard Leo has constructed around himself, mostly a nonprofit empire for a long time until 2016, as you note, when he begins this for-profit extension where he has these consulting firms and now the nonprofits are paying the consulting firm for certain services, but paying them in the tune of millions 40, of dollars. $43, 43 million, million dollars. I believe that was in one year for services that remain unexplained. So it's, again, this is a man that we all knew had extraordinary outsized influence in Washington, particularly around the federal judiciary. Your reporting mentioned only the three Trump justices, but it goes much deeper than that. Donald Trump, the most successful aspect of his domestic agenda was the nomination of judges. It's really the only thing he was able to actually do as president on a domestic agenda. And Leonard Leo was absolutely pivotal to that, not just recommending or identifying individuals for the 
the Supreme Court, but for the lower federal courts as well. And they did this amazingly well. They nominated and confirmed 54 Court of Appeals judges in four years. Barack Obama in eight years nominated and confirmed 55. The Trump administration basically did that in half the time. And a lot of it was Leonard Leo. And a lot of it was vetting these individuals through their bona fides through Leonard Leo's Federalist Society. Yes. So all of this is sort of deeply intertwined. Um, the Judicial Crisis Network, which is now the Concord Fund, which is also part of the Leonard Leo empire, is related to the Federalist Society, which Leonard Leo was the chairman of for many years, but now a step back as he runs this for-profit consultancy. It's a lot. And it's all, again, inextricably intertwined. There are all of these sort of shadow organizations providing funding that no one really knows about. And again, as you say, we don't understand what the funding stream is between these nonprofits and the for-profit consultancy that has emerged in recent years. And and these price tags are massive, right? I mean, that should raise red flags for the IRS. I mean, the idea, as that tax professor whom was mentioned in the reporting said, when you have a nonprofit funneling this amount of money at the scale, to a for-profit that is somehow related or at least in the orbit of the nonprofit, it would raise red flags. But we've also seen over the last year the Republican Party and conservatives raising red flags about the IRS. It's partisan. It does this. I mean, and it seems like not looking into something like this, is that a, a correction, an overcorrection in response to claims that the IRS is somehow acting in a partisan fashion? Who knows? But it does seem like the idea of discrediting the oh. IRS is may be related to something like this, not allowing them to be viewed as legitimate if they were to investigate this kind of behavior. I mean, Leonard Leo reaped a $1.6 billion windfall from a single donor in what is likely the biggest single political gift in U.S. history. He is getting $1.6 billion at the same time that the Supreme Court, and I'll focus there, is issuing some of the most conservative opinions it ever has and reshaping American life. Now, $1.6 billion is a hefty price tag, but if you think about what they're getting for their money, potentially, I mean, how do you think that there is going to be any oversight of of the court, of what Leo's doing? Like, what is the road forward here and what seems so questionable, at least on the outside? I think every time I appear on the show to talk with you about the Supreme Court, I always wind up saying at some point, this has got to be a really bad day for John G. Roberts, the (laughs) Chief Justice of the United States, who more than anyone views himself as the institutional steward of the court. This is terrible for the court. I mean, we've already had over the last year reporting about a campaign to influence Supreme Court justices, buying buildings across from the court, and now this. I mean, if the public was already disenchanted with the court, wondering if something was up with the court, and maybe this is not the neutral arbiter that we thought it was, this is not going to help. And it's not going to make John Roberts's job as chief justice, the steward of the court's institutional legitimacy, any easier. $1.6 billion. Just $1.6 billion. Melissa Murray, thank you for your time tonight. Thank, thank you. you for your felt outrage with me. I need it. Coming up, I took a trip down to the Sunshine State over the weekend, and I'm going to give you a sneak peek coming up next. This past weekend, I traveled to Sarasota, Florida to visit New College, the liberal arts school that is at the center of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis' war on academic freedom and wokeism. I was impressed. New College is a beautiful place, and its students are bright, and they are really, really engaged in the world. I talked to several of them, all from different backgrounds, and despite what Governor DeSantis would have you believe— 
These kids are not going to new college to be indoctrinated in leftism or to enroll in silly courses like what the government call the governor calls zombie studies, whatever that is. They are studying neuroscience and marine biology and applied mathematics and economics and finance. These kids and their parents picked New College because it is a good school with great professors and because it offers a personalized education that is unheard of almost anywhere else, especially for the low-cost tuition. So now that Governor DeSantis is trying to take over the school and turn it into a conservative religious college, parents and students at New College are fighting back with everything they've got. They are organizing rallies and they are launching social media campaigns. They know what is at stake here. Tomorrow, I'll bring you an in-depth conversation with the students and the parents of New College about this fight and what they think of Governor DeSantis and his war on woke. Be sure to tune in. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.